0: I think that uh, song makes a a perfect uh, theme song for the book of Esther, isn't it? Because that's what they're facing in that. Those going uh, to junior church can be dismissed at this time. Back the back corner doors. The rest of you, grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Esther, chapter 8. If you were here last Sunday, it may have seemed like the climax of the story took place. Uh, in the events that we looked at then, uh, when Esther finally exposed Haman as an evil, manipulative jerk and, and, and then ended up uh, uh, being hung on his own gallows. Uh, but there's still an important part of the story to yet be viewed. Uh, the final act in this particular drama uh, is covered in chapters 8 through 10. That's what we'll be looking at this morning as we finish up this series called The Covert God. And so far as we've been working our way through the story in the book of Esther, we've been looking at various lessons that we can learn from the different characters in the story. Uh, We've gleaned some very positive, encouraging uh, lessons from Mordecai, from Esther. Uh, We've acquired some good instructions from the bad examples of uh, King Ahasuerus and and Haman. Uh, But today as as we Uh, bring this series to a a close Uh, I want to look at two characteristics of God uh, that are not only evident in these these final three chapters but have been evident throughout the entire story in the book of Esther Uh, before we do that though let's uh, commit this time of preaching to the Lord Father God we're just uh, so thankful for your love and your grace that you give us we're thankful for your word uh, which you have given to instruct us to guide us and to lead us uh, and the Holy Spirit, which uh, teaches us all things that we need. And so, Father, we just pray right now your spirit would be free to move in and amongst us as we look in your word to do the good work you would desire in each heart and life here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was uh, thinking this, uh, this week, there's been some huge uh, blockbuster movies, you know, that have come out in the last 20 years. And so just for the fun of it, I decided to look up what, what were the top 10 grossing movies of, of all time? And um, these are movies that so many people have watched, so many people have seen them, that they, even the movie in 10th place, made over $1 billion, $1.1 $1, $1. $1 billion. That would be the uh, Transformers, Dark of the Moon. And if you're into the superhero movies, two of the Avenger movies were on the top 10 list, sixth and third place for them. Uh, Only one animated movie made the top ten. That would be uh, Disney's Frozen. Came in at eighth place. Titanic held first place for 12 years. Uh, But then it was knocked out of first place by a movie that so many people saw. I mean, think about this. You you pay ten bucks a movie or or whatever, you know. So many people saw this movie that it made almost three billion dollars. Three billion. And that movie's Avatar. Uh, That's the, the one at the top, number one. But... According to the Library of Congress, who apparently keeps track of stuff like this, do you know which movie is considered the most seen movie of all time? It was not a blockbuster when it came out, but this movie has been seen, according to the Library of Congress, by more people than any other movie in history. It was made 79 years ago, and it's called The Wizard of Oz. Mm. Now, one of the iconic scenes in that movie is when Dorothy and her friends, you know, they, they return to the wizard after defeating the Wicked Witch of the West and the wizard is saying some harsh and mean things to them when Toto runs over, grabs the curtain and begins pulling it aside and reveals the fact that there's a little old man back there manipulating a machine that is just projecting an image of the supposedly great and awesome Wizard of Oz. See... Up until that point, Dorothy and her friends could only see what was in front of them. Uh, They had no idea that it was actually someone else who was controlling things because he was hidden behind the curtain. Well, in a somewhat similar sort of fashion, the book of Esther shows us everything that's happening right in front of your face. Queen Vashti gets banished. Esther gets selected as the new uh, queen. Uh, Mordecai turns in a couple of guys plotting an assassination. Haman has this hatred towards Mordecai because he won't bow down to him. Uh, uh, and, And he begins this plot to murder not only Uh, Mordecai but uh, all the Jews you get the king's sleepless night which leads to the exaltation of Mordecai and finally of course the revealing of Haman and his evil plot and and his murder uh, or I mean his demise upon uh, the gallows and all of those things are just the events that are happening laid out right in front of our eyes but behind it all hidden behind the curtain is the work of God and even though we may not see any miracles in this book, the, the first characteristic that I want us to, to focus on, the reality that we see throughout the book of Esther and in these final three chapters, is that God is the one who's always at work. We've seen His hand moving in all of these events throughout Esther, much the same as we can see His hand moving in the world today and in our own lives. We have a tendency to just see the stuff that's right in front of our eyes. It's the things that are happening to us. And a lot of times, it's not very good stuff. And and, and the reason, of course, all that bad stuff is happening is is because we live in a broken and fallen world that is under the curse of God. And and the curse is the result of of sin and therefore sin is the reason for all the bad stuff that we encounter uh, in this world. And that's true both in a general uh, sense and in a very specific sense. There, there are bad things that happen in this life to all people, both the righteous and the unrighteous, because of that curse upon the earth uh, in general, bad things can happen that cause pain and heartache and, and, and trouble. Things like devastating uh, tornadoes and, and earthquakes and other natural calamities. You, 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 we have car accidents. You trip and fall down the stairs. You break bones. You got colds and diseases and birth defects aches and pains, especially as you grow older. And all of that is from the general effects of sin. Uh, Then you have, of course, uh, the specific results of sin. When you do something wrong and you suffer the consequences or the results of it, or someone else sins and it impacts you just as the shooter who killed those people in Pittsburgh yesterday and 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 now so many lives are impacted from that man's sin. The specific results of of these sins. Sin is is the root of, of all those things. But but we understand that it's not just bad things that happen to us. Sometimes we have the tendency to focus that way, but man, we see the good things that happen right in front of our face as well, right? Children are born healthy. Trees Produce fruit. You're, you're able to stop in time to avoid an accident. You you have food to eat on your table, and right and and in and over and through all of these things, it is God, who is at work. But most of the time, like we've seen in the book of Esther, God is behind the curtain, so you don't actually notice that He's the one that's working, unless you're purposely paying attention and looking for that. But I want to ask you a question. How do you know? How, how do you know that the things that happen to you, both good and bad, that comes into our lives, how do you know they're not just random events that are the result of chance and fate? When God acts overtly, right, when he does a miracle, it's easy to see his hand at work. When you're standing in front of the Red Sea and it parts and you're walking through on dry land, it's pretty easy to say, hmm, that's probably God, you know, because it's easy to recognize that. But when you slam on the brakes and avert an accident, do we say, whew, I was lucky I saw that one coming, or boy, good thing I got quick reflexes, or, you know, how do we do that? the vast majority of the time, God acts covertly using the means of ordinary human activity and events, human decisions and, and, and these types of things to accomplish His purpose. So how do we know that it's really Him and not just Human will or our own cleverness or our own abilities or, or, or not just some indiscriminate, random, uh, arbitrary incident that is shaping our life. If you can't see God, if He's hidden behind the curtain, so to speak, how do you know it's really Him who is working on our behalf? And I think there are, are two main ways that we know that. The, the first reason and, and the first and by far the, the primary reason that we know this is because the Bible tells us. That, that, that's, what, that's what God teaches through His Word over and over again. Just one example, Psalm 103, 19 declares, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over some things. All it says, rules over all. Guess what that Hebrew word all means? Everything. It means everything. Think about that. Think about what that means. God is never caught off guard. He is never sitting on his throne saying, "Whoa, I didn't see that coming." Uh, he, he's never there perplexed and wondering, oh, what should I do now? What, what's going to happen? I, I don't know what, what to do. God, he's sovereign, meaning he is in complete control over everything. Everything. Through the prophet Isaiah, God declared, I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating darkness calamity i am the lord who does all these the sovereignty of god causes some angst in in some people but for me i mean it's it's an incredibly comforting doctrine because you need to understand you cannot separate the sovereignty of God from any of His other attributes, such as His His justice, His mercy, His grace, His love, all of these things. And because of that, I can walk forward, no matter what I might be facing in this life, good or calamity, with the confidence of knowing that God is working, and I can know that He is working for my Uh, from the perspective of love because that's who God is in every circumstance in my life I can count on that and in the midst of calamity that's especially important to understand that God is working and that brings me comfort because we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purposes so in everything you see, everything you experience, and maybe it'd be important to say, in spite of some of the things you see and what you experience, God is in control. That that's what the Bible teaches us. But as I said, there's, there's two ways you can know uh, that God's in control. Again, by far and above the, the main way you know is because that's what scripture teaches but I think we can also see and understand this truth about how God works in our life when we carefully and objectively look back at our own lives We can see how circumstances we've gone through have have molded us and shaped us into the people that we are today. We can see how God has used events and, and, and people to lead us and to guide us right where He wants to be. We can see how God has been with us, has acted on our behalf, even at times when we're ignoring Him. Look back at your life. And you can see how the hand of God has moved you time and again. God is at work. And I want to ask you something. If you know that Scripture teaches God is at work, and you can look back and you can see how God has worked in your life, isn't it reasonable to see and assume that he's working right now, even if you can't see him because he's behind the curtain? That's what we learn in the book of Esther. And we have seen it over and over again. We'll see it again today as, as our story wraps up. Uh, if you weren't here last Sunday... Haman, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, was finally exposed uh, for the evil, corrupt man that he is. And as a result, he was hung on his own gallows, gallows which he had built in the hopes of killing Mordecai upon them. And and just a a real quick um, side note here. Uh, Instead of gallows, some of your Bibles may say that it was a pole or a spike And that he was going to impale them on there. And you're thinking, whoa, what's up with that? Because that's a lot different than a gallows. Those are two totally different things. Well, here's how that works out. The the Hebrew word that is translated gallows or or spike is a word that literally means tree or wood. And and this particular Hebrew word would be used for a single uh, piece of wood, a single piece of lumber, or for an entire framework. Of wood. They would use this, this same word for it. Well, what we know is that he was going to be hung on it. So if you're hung on it, we know that this particular wood was an instrument of death. And, and therefore it was translated as gallows uh, in the King James and, and many other Bibles because the Jews did use uh, hanging uh, from a gallows as a means of of execution, sometimes or or not so much from a constructed gallows, but usually from a tree, uh, and that, so that word tree. But as archaeologists have, as they've studied and discovered I- information about ancient Persia, they found out that those guys rarely hung people in the in the sense that we think of it. Instead, what they would do is take a, a single timber and and then uh, create an incredibly sharpened a razor-sharp point at the top, and then they would impale the person on there, uh, and, and then they would be hung to die that way. And in both cases, they're hung uh, up there. Uh, just, I mean, it's, you know, kind of gruesome idea, but the, the point is uh, it was a piece of wood that was used to kill him, and, 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 and Haman, whether it was a gallows or a spike, was killed on, on the very device that he had planned to murder Mordecai on and that uh brings us to the closing chapters of Esther. After Haman was killed, the king gave everything that Haman owned to Esther. It was a pretty common practice in Persia at that time for the crown to confiscate all of the uh, property and goods of anyone who was deemed to be a traitor uh, to the country, uh, which Haman fit that uh, apparently. And, and so he took all their stuff and that means that uh, he, all of Haman's money, His business holdings, his houses, uh, material goods, all of his servants, his slaves, his stocks and bonds, everything belong now to Esther. And she in turn exposed Mordecai to the king now as who he was. This, This guy is my cousin, but more important, he's the man who raised me. And, and the king would have immediately recognized him and would go, hey, that's the same dude that saved my life. Uh, and, and so the king liked him and, and therefore the king uh, rewarded Mordecai by giving him Haman's position in the kingdom. Second most powerful man. And Esther rewarded Mordecai by making him manager over Mordecai's estate. So, Talk about a complete reversal of fortune, right? Mordecai was targeted for death, but instead ends up ruling over the house of the guy who had targeted him for death and taking his job. I mean, that's awesome. And I think it highlights uh, another characteristic of God. And it's the fact that God can take the most negative, the most dire situation and turn it into a positive. And and haven't we seen that all throughout the book of Esther? I mean, first with Esther, right? She was ripped away from her family uh, and, and, and... forced to be in this contest uh, about being queen. And that meant all her hopes and her dreams that she had for life, you know, uh, falling in love with some man and marrying this guy and raising a family and being part of big family events and her Jewish faith, uh, being able to worship together. With these, all of that was taken away from her. And, and and in all likelihood, the prospect she had to look forward to was just being a part of the king's harem, which pretty much put you in prison because you didn't get to go out. You nobody got to see you. You were kept secluded from the, all the rest of society. That's that's what she looked forward to. But but God moved in the king's heart so that he selected her to be queen, which which was a lot better than just being stuck in the harem. Only she was still pretty much stuck. She might not have seen that as really that great of a deal because, one, he wasn't that swell of a guy to be married to. Uh, we've seen that throughout the thing. But, but beyond that, uh, she, she was still isolated and, and stuck away from society. And she might not have realized the good of that position until she saw how God used her to save her own people because she was queen. Mordecai. So she, she had that reversal of fortune. Mordecai, uh, as we just went through, had that, had that same thing. I mean, he was under that royal command to, to bow worshipfully to Haman, but man, he wasn't going to compromise his faith. And, and so Haman was furious at him, targeted him for death. And, and apart from God's intervening work, he would have been dead this morning instead of promoted, right? Uh, to the position he was at. God interposed on his behalf. God took each of those dire situations and turned them into positive realities worthy of, of praising God. Man, thank you, God, for what you've done. A- and this happens again in the, in the final three chapters on a bigger scale for all the Jews, right? Because remember, just because Haman was put to death... That doesn't mean that his edict that he had proclaimed for the death of all the Jews had been changed. That was still in effect. Because remember, once once made a law, the law of the Medes and Persians could not be changed. And so when the date came up, all the Jews were still scheduled to be killed. And and understanding that and realizing that, Esther again approached the king and it says, "...then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet and wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews." And she went on as she was talking to the king to explain that man, even though my own life is spared and, and, and I'm no, I'm going to be safe, I, I just couldn't endure it if all my people were, were going to be killed. And, and to the king's credit, he got that. Yeah, he, he understood. Boy, I'd that'd probably be kind of a bummer for the queen if all if all her people were killed. And so and, and so he gave her permission to to help. It says here uh, now you. Uh, and, and Mordecai was with her, so he's talking to both of them there. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So that's what happened with Haman. Remember Haman had the king's signet ring? He wrote an official document. It was sealed and, and so it couldn't be changed but now they were able to come up with some other type of decree that would help counteract what Haman decreed, and it would be as official and unchangeable as the first one was. And so Esther and Mordecai uh, put their heads together and they came up with the decree that basically said uh, hey you Jews you've got the right to defend yourself before they had no right to do that they were just prey. now they could defend themselves and, and they took almost the exact same language that Haman used against the Jews and then turned it for the Jews look at verse 11 in them the king, because again this, they say the king even though Esther and Mordecai wrote it because it's an official document from him, granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, those same three words that Haman had used, uh, the entire army of any people or province which might attack them including children and women and to plunder their spoils. So now the Jews could do to the people that were going to attack them everything they were going to originally do to them. And and these two competing proclamations, of course, would lead to a battle. But at least now the Jews had a fighting chance. And this brought a a sense of of hope to the Jewish population throughout the entire empire. And and you would think that now with this right, it would give the people uh, in the land good reason not to carry out Haman's original orders uh, you know, to, to kill off your neighbor if, if they happen to be Jewish because now it could cost them their own life. But there were two groups of people that I believe were still determined to try it anyways. And as you read through the book, you see they were attacked uh, by people. And the first would be the prejudiced ones, those who hated the Jews, simply because they were Jews. And, and you'll see that as you, if, and I encourage you, go home and read chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, it talks about those who hated them, their, their enemy. Given the go-ahead by the state, these people would be willing to kill. And you know, prejudice can lead people to do horrible things to an innocent neighbor. And we've seen that in the history of our own country. It's a very sad commentary when people allow skin color or cultural traditions or any other thing to cause them to think ill, think down, think poorly of any other group of people. And it should go without saying that God condemns prejudice and that it should have no part in the Christian's life. God calls us to love our neighbor. And neighbor doesn't mean the person who's the same as you. Neighbor doesn't mean the ones that you get, like and get along with, right? Neighbor means all. That's how Jesus defined it. A, a simple example is in Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. All of the requirements of the law. You want to know how you can keep all of God's law? Love, that's what it's about, love your neighbor. Now the second group, the second group of people that I think would still be willing to attack even though this counter option has been there would be those who were seeking an e- what they would consider an easy, illicit gain. Hey, I can get rich. I, I can get myself a bunch of money by killing my neighbor and taking all his stuff. And it's legal, I can do it, at least on this one day uh, of this proclamation. Only now the Jews, of course, could band together and defend their lives and their possessions. And and as you read the first half of chapter 9, it it tells you the story of exactly how that happened and what it did. But verse 1 kind of summarizes it for us. It says, Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, It was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Exactly the opposite of what Haman wanted to happen took place. The Jews successfully defended themselves. And and, uh, it was battles. There were many people uh, killed, but it is very evident from the text as you read that that the Jews... Uh, were not after any gain or even revenge on their own, because it makes it very clear that they only battled against whoever attacked them, and they took no spoil. They harmed no women or children. They simply defended themselves, and God gave them an overwhelming victory. And at what, at first appeared, to be an incredibly horrible crisis turned into a celebration as verse 16 puts it for the jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor and you know what god has not stopped doing that same thing you may be facing your own crisis right now And I don't know what crisis yours might be. It might be relational. It might be financial. It it might be physical. uh, All these types of things. But understand that whatever you are facing, it is not beyond the bounds of God's power to change. He can take your fears. He can take your gloom and doom and turn it into rejoicing. That's... No situation which he cannot bring good out of what appears to be evil and bad. Now I do think it's important for us to understand that what God did in this particular situation is an example of what he can do and not a a blueprint Uh, for what he has promised to do. In other words, God does not promise that everything that happens to you in this earthly life will also, in this earthly life, be reversed so that you end up up on top smelling like roses. Sometimes that reversal of the good that we seek will not happen until eternity. But here's what you can hold on to to give you hope and courage and strength every single day we know for certain that God is just and in his own time and in his own way he will always deal with both the injustice that has been done to you and with those who have been unjust and when we know that And we can gain courage and encouragement in standing on that as we face whatever we might face in life. So in our study of Esther, we've seen two characteristics of God. Characteristics that should bring us comfort and hope in our lives today. First, God is always working. Just because you can't see Him, just because it's hidden behind the curtain, just because what's in front of your face right now might seem horrible and bad, God is working. He has not abdicated the throne. He has not stepped out of His position as sovereign ruler of the universe. And He is working. And knowing that He is working, you can focus on the other aspects of God's character his love, his grace, his mercy and know that he is working for your good and your benefit And sometimes your good means going through something tough to help change or mold your character because he's more interested in making you like Jesus Christ than he is in making you comfortable second God can take the most dire circumstances that you're facing turn them into something positive he is a just god and eventually all injustice that you experience will be reversed and because of these two truths we have hope and courage i mean think about it doesn't that take a load off your shoulders if god's the one who is working and in charge then it's not about you having to make it work having to fix it, having to get it right. God's working, and he's in control. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity to come into your word. We thank you for this account of Esther that you have preserved for us in your word, that we can learn from it, these truths that are up-to-date and current and impact us in our lives today. God, you do not change. You are still this God who is in control, who is working, who is sovereign. May we stand on that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.